Did you say something? It's hard to So this is a slightly different tune, but look at the words. I'll tell you in a minute why we're listening to this. So a couple of things about why we're listening to that tonight. One is that that piece of music is all about the order of creation and the way that God has made creation ordered and beautiful and that it is so ordered and so beautiful that it should speak to us even if we are theologically illiterate. And I love the fact that this is at Trinity College, Cambridge, Trinity College, Cambridge is sort of like the uh, like the way Americans think of MIT. Uh, it is the foremost science part of the Oxford-Cambridge axis. And where Sir Isaac Newton was, where Crick and Watson discovered DNA, where Michael Faraday was, scientist after scientist after scientist. And the song was recorded as part of a BBC series on the wonder of science that was theologically grounded, which is a lovely bless, idea. God bless the BBC. I tell you, <laughs> sometimes they get it right. So, um, But that will be in your uh, email when that comes, and I would encourage you to listen to it and turn it up loud and think about the words, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that's significant for Lewis uh, as we move into the evening. Right. So, yes. Right. Was there some significance to the placement and grouping of the singers? I don't think so. I think it was just the way. Stephen Layton is a brilliant choral conductor, and for whatever reason, he did that. And if there is significance, it's lost on me. <laughs> so with that, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this evening and the chance to be able to gather together again in this class. Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for all of the amazing wisdom that is in it, that is grounded in your word. We pray that you would help us to be able to focus in tonight, um, to learn things that would help us to grow in our understanding of you and our walk with Jesus. We pray that you would bless our time together with your Holy Spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm delighted to see all of y'all after this long hiatus, and uh, we are 
uh, only in here for one week. Next week, we will be back in the parish hall. Uh, for those of you that came in late, there are some sandwiches back there, so feel free to get up and munch some during class if you want to do that. Uh, we are uh, going to be finishing this book up before summer, and uh, we're going to be going really quickly uh, because I really think we need to finish before summer, but I just want to say that it's very painful for me <laughs> because there's so much more in here that I want to talk about. But uh, let's go ahead and say together our verse. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Every week that goes by as I watch the news, this verse just becomes more and more and more relevant. So, uh, for people who are new, we are still getting people who are new. Uh, we have some new people from Saudi Arabia, believe it or not. Uh, and so, uh, just a word about how to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you just appear when you feel like it. You don't read. You just get through osmosis what you get. That's great. Or you can snorkel, go deep on the parts that you like. And one of my favorite parts is coming next week. So if you're wired anything like me, if you're on the beach, you'll want to get off the beach for next week. Um, or you can scuba dive, which means you just go deep with all of it. And as we've said before, reading this one chapter at a time is a really good idea. As you get toward the end, I find it's impossible to just read one chapter at a time because the action really gets going and you want to know what happens. And if you can't help yourself, just go ahead. It's all good. So uh, a couple of things to remember as we read and go into this latter section of the book. The themes from Abolition of Man become more and more and more evident in the latter part of the book. And uh, just keep your eye out for those. First, this whole idea of the importance of objective value and the poison of subjectivism, which goes right back to that song that we just heard. Um, also, this whole idea of the Tao natural law, the law that God has planted in the hearts of men and women uh, that is really the only source of all value judgments, the understanding that we are not our own creator. God is the creator, that we are formed in his image and that we experience joy as we live in alignment with the way that he made us. And then the abolition of man, this idea that certain men, and this really goes right back to that whole Tower of Babel idea, that some men think that they are smart enough to, without God because they don't believe in God, refashion the human race, refashion morality, refashion um, right and wrong, refashion creation, uh, refashion truth, so that they become the ones who are telling everyone else what is right and wrong. And Lewis foresaw this coming. He said this whole idea of trying to control nature will end up being used for some men to use nature as a means to control others, and that if you deconstruct everything, there's nothing left. So I'm not going to comment on whether that might be happening right in front of us. Um, so again, the source of the title that actually comes out this week, I don't know if you noticed that in the chapter this week, it says that hideous strength twice in the chapter, uh, which is so rewarding to finally get to where he gives us those words. Uh, that hideous strength comes from the Tower of Babel, and that theme is all through here, that when men try to take things into their own hands and disregard the created order and disregard the law of God, havoc will result. 
and Lewis foresaw that coming, and he sees that as demonic, that it's not just an accident that it's happening, that it is happening uh, because Satan and his minions are active uh, in a way that we wish that they were not. So, um, uh-oh, I don't know what happened right there. Maybe we lost a slide somehow. Oh, no, there it is, okay. So, um, you'll remember that this starts off with the faculty meeting in Bracton College, and the whole thing gets going with the sale of this sacred, beautiful, ancient, historic college wood to this institute called the NICE. The NICE. How could you be against the NICE? They sound so nice. Uh, but that is the beginning of everything else that's happened in here. And the farther you get in this book, it's interesting to go back to the beginning and look at all of the little steps that didn't seem like such a big deal at the time. But as those little steps happen one after another, all of the sudden the world gets turned upside down. And we see these two very different journeys of this married couple, Mark and Jane. Mark obsessed with the lore of the inner ring, wanting to be cool, wanted to be accepted by the in crowd, and Jane really wanting her independence, wanting um, to get rid of these dreams that she keeps having, but she is drawn toward this community of St. Anne's. Mark is drawn toward the nice, and one of the things you should see is that there is this unbelievable, this is kind of, I'm such a nerd, I would love to like write a term paper or a thesis contrasting all of the elements starting at the top with the head and the director of the nice and the company at St. Anne's and the way their building looks, the way they operate. It's just, Lewis does the most brilliant job of setting these up as foils to one another. And you see as Mark and Jane get involved in each of them, they each begin to change more into the likeness of what's going on in that community until finally Mark wakes up and realizes, or begins to wake up, realizes what is happening to him. So uh, we've seen all sorts of crazy things going on. We've seen the nice characterized by doublespeak, using all these big words and saying all of the stuff that doesn't mean anything, and having these crazy things like inviting someone for a job interview, and you try to ask, well, what's the job, and you can't get an answer. What are the responsibilities? You can't get an answer to that. Who do I work for? You can't get an answer to that. What's the pay? You can't get an answer to that. And they just seem to think that's all normal. And so they continually push all of this verbiage at people that doesn't mean anything. And then, of course, we learn about the Pendragon, about Ransom, the director. And there is that beautiful scene in Chapter 7 where uh, Jane meets the director and Lewis this is part of Lewis's brilliance as a writer. He changes his diction entirely. The whole pace slows down. There's this golden, heavy, silent, reverent, holy feeling to that chapter. If you're ever having a bad day, just pull the book out and flip to chapter seven and read that part, particularly the part where when Jane encounters the director and the presence of all of the beauty around her, around him, she says her world is unmade. And everything else that she was worried about, all the things that she thought were so important, when she's confronted with his presence, all those things fall away. And of course, Lewis is saying that's the way it should be for us with Christ, that as we enter into his presence, as the old song says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we continue to see this contrast between the two places develop. Uh, we see the nice um, doing all sorts of terrible things, murdering people, causing riots, demolishing people's homes. Um, and then there is this battle about Merlin because Merlin seems to be the key to everything. And so both the nice and the company at St. Anne's are trying to be the first to get to Merlin. And they are, uh, the people at St. Anne's are very worried because they think Merlin 
maybe is malevolent, and if the nice gets a hold of him, that's going to be the end. And the people at the nice um, have been told by the demons that speak through the head there um, that they need to get Merlin so they can use his powers for evil. So uh, chapter 11, the battle begun, was the last one that we read, and we saw um, finally... Uh, Ransom send Jane and Deniston and Dimble out to look for Merlin. And they go out after great prayer and great excitement that finally the moment has come to act. And then it's completely anticlimactic because they don't find him. He's not there when they get there. And there's a great spiritual lesson in there that sometimes you can be doing exactly what the Lord calls you to do and the results do not happen the way that you expect. So, but we're going to see that play out. So we are on chapter 12, wet and windy night. So you're going to have to use your imagination because here we're having hot and dry and still night. Uh, So in this chapter, Jane, Dumble, and Deniston are still out tramping around in the countryside looking for Merlin and Weather is at the nice and using mind control in this really creepy way where he's sort of half conscious. And he goes and uh, has this spy go out, this guy named Stone, looking for Merlin. And so they've been looking for him and trying to find an old man with unusual clothes because they figure if he was buried in the Middle Ages, he's going to look kind of weird. So um, Jane and Dimble and Deniston keep looking, and then they see this huge horse go by with a man in streaming garments, and they try to call out, but the horse leaps over a hedge and is gone. Um, Meanwhile, Frost, the creepy guy with the pince-nez and the little beard, um, has gone into Mark's cell, and Mark has figured out that he's not in the police jail, that he's actually in the nice jail. Just sounds like an oxymoron, the nice jail. but that uh, they finally are up front with Mark. They say, we might kill you. So nice of the nice. We might kill you, as we have done with others, like Bill Hingis, which they'd never admitted so brazenly before that they murdered him. Uh, but the other opportunity is to be admitted to the most select inner ring of the nice. Now, just in case you've been asleep for the past few months, if somebody is offering you a choice, we're planning to kill you, but would you rather be in our inner ring? Would you want to be in an inner ring of people that are planning to kill you? Probably not. Uh, But anyway, part of what Frost says is that Mark needs to learn to ignore all emotion, ignore anything except raw intellect. And again, this is dehumanizing. It is making people not the way God has made them, taking away their humanity, being in the image of God. And then uh, Frost also finally tells Mark that the way that the nice gets its instructions is really not from Alcasan's head, but these macrobes, which essentially are demons. They're like the evil Eldela. Remember the Eldela are the angels over each of these planets. And he, they are... Um, speaking through Alcasan's head. And Mark has been revolted by all this, so he's trying to sort of play along so he stays alive, but he still feels this lure of the inner ring. And Frost is really leaning on him, and then there's all this commotion outside and banging on the door, and Frost is furious, and somebody sticks a hand in with a note. Frost looks at it, blanches, and then runs out and leaves Mark. So Mark has no idea what's happening. So back at St. Anne's, they're waiting for Jane and Dumble and Deniston to get back. There's this huge storm going on outside, and they hear this loud noise. So Ransom and McPhee go to the door, and there's a huge horse at the door, and this very tall man, and he jumps off the horse, and he's wearing these uh, sort of disreputable old clothes and boots that have lost their toes. Uh, And they are shocked seeing this sort of apparition at their door. So the action flips back to the nice, um, and there are four men there, and they bring in a stretcher with an unconscious naked man on it, and they transfer him to a bed in this really elegantly appointed chamber that's like 
the room that you would put a king in. And so Weather and Frost stare at this man brought in on the stretcher, waiting for him to regain consciousness. And the man starts to wake up, and they believe he's Merlin. And so Frost tries to address him in Latin, but the man doesn't listen. And so they try to bring him some wine. They're trying to think, what would somebody from Merlin's era have really enjoyed? So they try to bring all this stuff and fawn on him, and they're bowing to him and all of these things. And they try again in Latin, but they don't take any notice. And the guy goes back to sleep. So Frost and Wither don't quite know what to do, so they go back to this other room to discuss it. So meanwhile, Mark has been left alone in the jail, not knowing what's going to happen to him, thinking they might come in and kill him. And he realizes he can't be neutral. He can't try to play both sides against the middle. He's got to get onto Jane's side if he's going to survive. And he's overwhelmed by this novel sensation of having done the right thing. And uh, he's so shocked because he hasn't had that sensation in a long time because we've been watching him go progressively downhill all through this book. And he finally realizes that every now and then when he gets these overwhelming urges to be part of this inner ring, that it's a form of attack. And although he's a materialist and he refuses to acknowledge the existence of the spiritual world, he starts to understand that there are forces that can bend his free will, and that scares him to death. So then, chapter 13, I love this title. They have pulled down deep heaven on their heads. Now remember, deep heaven is the whole cosmos created by Maladil, who's God, all of the planets, the stars, all that beauty we saw in that song that we were listening to at the beginning, and uh, we're going to hear where the title comes from in a minute. So, flash back to the community at St. Anne's. Merlin is standing at their door, and Ransom addresses him in Latin. Since Ransom's dressed in modern clothes, Merlin mistakes him for a slave and insists on being taken to his master. And Merlin only believes in Ransom's authority and identity as the Pendragon, whom he's sworn to obey, after Ransom correctly answers a series of three questions, which only the Pendragon would be able to answer. And if you haven't read this, please read this part. It's absolutely hilarious. There, this, this part and then the people at the Nice and what they do with this guy it really is just very funny. So, back at Bellberry, Frost and Weather are concerned about their inability to communicate with the person they believe to be Merlin, who is actually a simple wino and tramp. And they wonder who they have who can communicate with them. And after much pondering, they decide Mark Studdock might be able to help them. And Strake, remember Strake, the mad parson? Um, who's like liberation theology on cocaine um, that's just gone completely off the rails, um, even if it means bringing them into the inner circle sooner than they had planned. And there's some wonderful stuff in here about language and how the nice realizes that they haven't really paid very good attention to language and therefore their communications are not as good as they could be. Uh, there's a whole thing about philology there, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, so anyway, Merlin at St. Anne's puts almost everyone there to sleep under a spell. And once they awaken, they go and they find Merlin and Ransom, and they are in these glorious clothes, um, like gods or medieval monarchs, uh, and they are conversing intimately and all of the people at St. Anne's are really worried because they have thought Merlin was going to be an enemy and that he somehow got Ransom under a spell and something terrible is going to happen. But Ransom assures them that Merlin is actually on their side and has been sent to them. Because remember what happened, they were looking for Merlin, but Merlin, the instant he got free, came directly to St. Anne's of his own volition. And so the fact that Merlin has been sent to them is hugely important. This is a whole thing about the providence and will of God, um, the predestining of things, all of that is tied up in this. And so they are seeing Merlin and Merlin looks at Jane and he just 
absolutely goes ballistic. He's furious that Jane says her head should be chopped off and all sorts of unsavory things like that. And uh, fortunately, Jane does not speak Latin, so she doesn't realize what he's saying. But Dimble realizes and Ransom realizes. And the reason it turns out that he's so upset is that she and Mark had been foreordained to have a son who would have saved England. And it talks about how they had been prepared for generations and generations and generations for the son to be born. And then because of their selfishness and their refusal to live in the order that God had established for husband and wife and their decision that they were not going to have children no matter what, they have uh, gone against what God's plan was. But the director says Jane is on their side. She and Mark have plenty of time to have a child. So then there's another part that's really funny um, of Merlin coming from his, and Luce does such a good job with this. Merlin is a man who is completely enveloped in the worldview of the time when he lived, which is really um, the very, very early side of the Middle Ages. And he doesn't understand why if Ransom is the pen dragon, he can't just go like make everybody in the world do exactly what he says. And so they're trying to explain to him about things like government and parliament and all that. And he, he can't even get his head around any of it. So uh, Merlin thinks that uh, the Pendragon Ransom is the king. He doesn't understand why he can't just command things to happen. Uh, and he explains that the battle is engaging spiritual reality and it involves angelic beings with supernatural powers. Merlin wonders how the director knows the password um, about the Oyuresu, which is the, the sort of the council of the Eldela, who are the angels. And he is shocked when he hears that Ransom's not using a password, but he has actually met these planetary gods. He is just totally blown away, particularly because he's still not quite sure that Ransom isn't really a slave because he's wearing something like this instead of uh, robes of authority. So poor Merlin, um, he's having a tough time. So Merlin wonders about whether they can get help from other quarters, um, magic help, but Ransom explains that there's no help other than through the Eldella. And here's the first time that the hideous strength holds all this earth in its fist to squeeze as it wishes. But for their one mistake, there would be no hope left. They have gone to the gods who would not have come to them, and they have pulled down deep heaven on their heads. And what he's getting at here is they messed with the created order because they had gone to places they were not supposed to go. They have gotten these gods involved who would have left them alone if they hadn't gone off and um, done evil. And so uh, they have pulled, in the, in the greatest irony, they have pulled all of the power of deep heaven down on their heads. So uh, a couple of key passages from these chapters, and this is some great doublespeak from the nice here. Well, Mr. Stone, I am on the whole and with certain inevitable reservations moderately satisfied with your conduct of this affair. I believe I may be able to present it in a favorable light to those of my colleagues whose goodwill you have, unfortunately, not been able to retain. If you can bring it to a successful conclusion, you would very much strengthen your position. If not, it is inexpressibly painful to me that there should be these tensions and mutual recriminations among us. But you quite understand me, my dear boy. If only I could persuade, say, Miss Hardcastle and Mr. Studdock to share my appreciation of your very real qualities, you would need to have no apprehensions about your career or uh, your security. In other words, no matter what you do, damned if you do, damned if you don't, um, every, everywhere you look, there are people waiting to trap you. And no matter what you do, um, you're probably going to end up dead. So, what a nice place to be, called the nice. So then, continuing on the same theme, 
Frost and Mark's jail cell. You are in danger, said Frost, when he'd finished locking the door of Mark's cell. But you're also within reach of a great opportunity. I gather, said Mark, I'm at the Institute after all, and not in a police station. Yes, that makes no difference to the danger. The Institute will soon have official power of liquidation, i.e. murder. It has anticipated them. Hingist and Carstairs have both been liquidated. Such actions are demanded of us. And again, this is that theme that Lewis started with abolition of man and started in small things in this book, that when you think if you're going after a particular end, that any means is justified, even if it's evil, um, this is where you end up with lies and murder. So, Frost continues, resentment and fear are both chemical phenomena. Our reactions to one another are chemical phenomena. Social relations are chemical relations. You must observe these feelings in yourself in an objective matter. Do not let them distract your attention from the facts. And again, this is denial of humanity, denial of the natural order, and it is scientism, the worship of science. A few centuries ago, this is Frost again, a large agricultural population was essential, and war destroyed types, that means people, who were still then useful. But every advance in industry and agriculture reduces the number of work people who are required. A large, unintelligent population is now becoming a dead weight. The real importance of scientific war is that scientists have to be reserved. It was not the great technocrats of Konigsberg or Moscow who supplied the casualties of the siege of Stalingrad. It was superstitious Bavarian peasants and low-grade Russian agricultural workers. The effect of modern war is to eliminate retrogressive types while sparing the technocracy and increasing its hold upon public affairs. In the new age, hitherto been merely the intellectual nucleus of the race is to become by gradual stages the race itself. You're to conceive the species as an animal which has discovered how to simplify nutrition and locomotion to such a point that the old complex organs and the large body which contained them are no longer necessary. That large body is therefore to disappear. Only a tenth part of it will now be needed to support the brain. The individual is to become all head. The human race is to become all technocracy. So we've got all sorts of things going on here. Eugenics, death culture, putting people to death, mass extermination of people, uh, men without chest. It's just a head. It's a denial of the fullness of humanity. It's the denial of a soul. It's the denial of being made in the image of God and the idea that man is just like an animal, no different from an animal, and therefore uh, can be manipulated for whatever ends by those who are in charge. So, on that cheery note, uh, <laughs> we'll go back to St. Anne's. Do you know, said Ivy in a low voice, that's a thing I don't quite understand. They're so eerie, these ones that come to visit you, the Eldella. I wouldn't go near that part of the house if I thought there was anything there, not if you paid me a hundred pounds. But I don't feel like that about God. But he ought to be worse, if you see what I mean. He was once, said the director. You're quite right about the powers. Angels in general are not good company for men in general, even when they are good angels and good men. It's all in St. Paul. But as for Malodil himself, all that has changed. It was changed by what happened at Bethlehem. And Lewis is getting very specifically Christian now in a way he hasn't been so much in the book. And he's talking about the holiness of God and that men cannot come into the presence of God just as we saw with Moses not being able to look on the face of God, that the holiness of God prevented men being in contact with God until Jesus came and when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain of the temple that separated the holiness of God from mankind was rent in two. And because of Jesus, we are now able to be in conversation and in relationship with God. 
And so that's what happened at Bethlehem, the incarnation that led to Jesus' life on this earth in crucifixion and resurrection. So that whole idea of holiness and the importance of the incarnation, Lewis believed the incarnation was the central miracle of all history. And if you are scuba diving, sometime get a hold of the brilliant 4th century treatise by St. Athanasius called On the Incarnation and read the introduction that Lewis wrote to that book and then read the treatise. It will change your life. It's awesome. So back to Belberry. In a great room at Belberry where the fire blazed and wine and silver sparkled on side tables and a great bed occupied the center of the floor, the deputy director watched in profound silence while four young men with reverential or medical heedfulness carried in a burden on a stretcher. What he saw was a naked human body alive but apparently unconscious. He ordered the attendants to place hot water bottles at its feet and raise the head with pillows. When they had done so and withdrawn, he drew a chair to the foot of the bed and sat down to study the face of the sleeper. Now, (laughs) this is the tramp, the wino, that they are waiting on hand and foot, thinking he's going to change the world. And it is a great example of how the wisdom of the world can sometimes be great foolishness. So... Then, Wither and Frost get in a fight. One of the things that you see going on at the nights all the time is they all hate each other. They all hate each other. They're constantly jockeying for position and informing on each other. And there's this great little paragraph about that. My dear friend, ha, my dear friend. Ha, that is not what he means. My dear friend, who I hate. My dear friend, said Wither, I'm quite aware that the subject you mentioned has been discussed between you and the powers themselves, quite aware. And I don't doubt that you are equally well aware of certain discussions they have held with me about aspects of your own methods, which are open to criticism. Nothing would be more futile, I might say more dangerous, than any attempt to introduce between ourselves those modes of oblique discipline which we properly apply to our inferiors. It is in your own interest that I venture to touch on this point. So this is just evil. This is the way evil works, um, fostering division and radical, radical selfishness. They're only interested in themselves, not in anyone else. It is ugliness itself that becomes, in the end, the goal of his lettery. Beauty has long since grown too weak a stimulant, and so it was here. And this is Mark. These creatures of which Frost had spoken, and he did not doubt now that they were locally present with him in the cell, breathed death on the human race and on all joy. Not despite this, but because of this, the terrible gravitation sucked and tugged and fascinated him toward them. Never before had he known the fruitful strength of the movement opposite to nature, opposite to nature, which now had him in its grip, the impulse to reverse all reluctances and to draw every circle anti-clockwise. The meaning of certain pictures, of Frost's talk about objectivity, of the things done by witches in old times, became clear to him. The image of Wither's face rose to his memory, and this time he did not merely loathe it. He noted with shuddering satisfaction the signs it bore of a shared experience between them. Wither also knew. Wither understood. Uh, So this is just the lore of evil, the power of demons, the death of joy. And what this shows is Mark is trying to resist this, but because he's been playing with fire, it's just like people that say, oh, I'm never going to have a drinking problem. I can drink and drink and drink. You never know when that switch is going to flip, and all of a sudden, what you think you control is going to control you. And that's exactly what's going on here. And that's why Mark is so terrified because he realizes that it's not just his will that's involved anymore. There's something that's stronger that's working on him. So Mark again, gradually he realized he'd sustained some sort of attack and they'd put up no resistance at all. And with that realization, a quite new kind of dread entered his mind. 
Though he was theoretically a materialist, he had all his life believed quite inconsistently and even carelessly in the freedom of his own will. He had seldom made a moral resolution. And when he had resolved some hours ago to trust the Bellberry crew no further, he'd taken it for granted that he would be able to do what he resolved. He knew, to be sure, that he might change his mind. But till he did so, of course, he would carry out his plan. It had never occurred to him that his mind could thus be changed for him, all in an instant of time, changed beyond recognition. If that sort of thing could happen, it was unfair. Here was a man trying for the first time in his life to do what was obviously the right thing, the thing that Jane and the Dumbles and the aunt would have approved of. You might have expected that when a man behaved in that way, the universe would back him up. For the relics of such semi-savage versions of theism as Mark had picked up in the course of his life were stronger in him than he knew, and he felt, though he would not have put it into words, that it was up to the universe to reward his good resolutions. Yet the very first moment you tried to be good, the universe let you down. It revealed gaps you had never dreamed of, and invented new laws for the express purpose of letting you down. That was what you got for your pains. So Mark is dealing with demonic attack and this danger of toiling, toying with evil. The idea that you become a slave to sin. And this is part of what uh, we saw earlier. It's all in St. Paul. This is part of what he's talking about. Romans 7, that whole area where we, we become enslaved to sin and we cannot, even when we want to choose what is right, it is beyond our power. And poor Mark doesn't have any theological framework for being able to deal with any of this. So he's just overwhelmed. So these are uh, uh, the recounting of when Merlin first appears at the door. And this is what Ransom says to him. Stand in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Tell me who you are and why you come. Fellow, Merlin said in Latin, tell the Lord of this house that I am come. As he spoke, the wind from behind him was whipping the coat about his legs and blowing his hair over his forehead. But his great mass stood as if it had been planted like a tree, and he seemed in no hurry. And the voice, too, was such as one might imagine to be the voice of a tree, large and slow and patient, drawn up through roots and clay and gravel from the depths of the earth, like the ants in Tolkien. I am the master here, said Ransom, in the same language. To be sure, answered the stranger, and yonder whippersnapper is without doubt your bishop. He did not exactly smile, but a look of disquieting amusement came into his keen eyes. Suddenly he poked his head forward so as to bring his face much nearer the directors. So this is so interesting. You see, this faith in Christ is the key marker of identity and truth. This greeting in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, tell me who you are. So, back to Belberry. This throws quite an unexpected burden on our resources, said Weather to Frost, where they sat in the outer room at the door ajar. I must confess I had not anticipated any serious difficulty about language. We must get a Celtic scholar at once, said Frost. We're regrettably weak on the philological side. I do not at the moment know who has discovered most, most about ancient British. Ransom would be the man to advise us if he were available. I suppose nothing has been heard of him by your department. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, so this is just the perils of the ignorance of language. They have used language as their tool rather than respecting language. And now they are reaping the fruit of that. And the ironic thing is that they realize that Ransom is the one who knows about language, but of course he is inaccessible to them. So Dumble heard Merlin saying in what seemed to him a strange kind of Latin, Sir, you have in your house the falsest lady of any at this time alive. And Dumble heard the director answer him in the same language, Sir, you are mistaken. She is doubtless like all of us a sinner, but the woman is chaste. Sir, said Merlin, know well that she has done in Logros a thing of which no less sorrow shall come than came of the stroke that Balanus struck. For, sir, it was the purpose of God that she and her lord should between them have begotten a child by whom the enemy should have been put out of Logros for a thousand years. 
She is but lately married, said Ransom. The child may yet be born. Sir, said Merlin, be assured that the child will never be born, for the hour of its begetting is past. Of their own will, they are barren. For a hundred generations in two lines, the beginning of this child was prepared. And unless God should rip up the work of time, such seed and such an hour and such a land shall never be again. So we got the whole thing of God's plan and free will intersecting here, and we're going to see how that's going to work out. Well, said the director after a pause, there's some excuse for you all, for we have all been mistaken. So has the enemy. This man is Merlinus Ambrosius. They thought that if he came back, he would be on their side. I find he is on ours. You, Dimble, ought to realize this was always a possibility. Is is he a Christian, asked Dimble? Yes, said Ransom. So again, this importance of identity as a Christian, somebody who is forthrightly claiming the name of Jesus Christ. So here we go again. Good is always getting better, and bad is always getting worse. The possibilities of even apparent neutrality are always diminishing. The whole thing is sorting itself out all the time, coming to a point, getting sharper and harder. Like in the poem about heaven and hell eating into merry middle earth from opposite sides. How does it go? Something about eat every day till all is something to weigh. It can't be eaten. That wouldn't scan. My memory has failed dreadfully these last few years. Do you know this bit, Marjorie? What you were saying reminded me more of the bit in the Bible about the winnowing fan, separating the wheat and the chaff. Or like Browning's line, life's business being just the terrible choice. And this is a great Browning poem that I'll include part of um, in the email. It's actually, I think, 25,000 verses long. So, um, it is it is a verse novel. Um, so I'm not going to send you all that because your computer would crash. But this little section is just brilliant. It is right on the point. And this whole idea that there is a separation between good and evil. And Lewis talks about this in Abolition of Man, that when you let go of objective value, the, the center, it's like that Yeats poem, this, um, the second coming, the center will not hold. And so everything divides, and we're seeing that in our culture right now. And so he talks about the impossibility of neutrality and how important it is um, to choose and to choose the right side and destiny. So, um, and then this is uh, talking about Merlin. Merlin is the reverse of Belberry. He's at the opposite extreme. He's the last vestige of an old order in which matter and spirit were, from our modern point of view, confused. For him, every operation on nature is a kind of personal contact, like coaxing a child or stroking one's horse. After him came the modern man, to whom nature is something dead, a machine to be worked and taken to bits if it won't work the way he pleases. Finally come the Bellberry people, who take over that view from the modern man unaltered, and simply want to increase their power by tacking onto it the aid of spirits, extra-natural, anti-natural spirits. Of course they hope to have it both ways. They thought that the old magia of Merlin, which worked with the spiritual qualities of nature, loving and reverencing them and knowing them from within, could be combined with the new Goetia, the brutal surgery from without. So um, magia is white magic, Goetia is black magic. The brutal surgery from without, no. In a sense, Merlin represents what we've got to get back to in some different way. Do you know that he is forbidden by the rules of his order to use any edged tool on any growing thing? And Lewis is pointing us here again to the importance of creation and reverence for it, that man was put to be the steward of all of the earth and that nature is part of God's creation as well. So no power that is merely earthly, Ransom continued, will serve against the hideous strength. There it is again. Then let us all to prayers, said Merlinus. But there also, I was not reckoned of much account. They called me a devil's son, some of them. It was a lie, but I don't know why I've been brought back, said Merlin. Certainly let us stick to our prayers, said Ransom, now and always. But that was not what I meant. There are celestial powers, created powers not in this earth, but in the heavens. So again, the power of prayer, the reality that there are... 
Okay, there we are. All right. So, power of prayer, reality of heavenly powers, that we are not alone in this battle, that there are spiritual forces in the heavens, God, the angels, that are more interested in working out their will than we are. So that leads uh, Ransom and Merlin into this discussion. Has not our fair Lord made it a law for himself that he will not send down the powers to mend or mar in this earth until the end of all things? Or is this the end that even now is coming to pass? It may be the beginning of the end, said Ransom, but I know nothing of that. Maladil may have made it a law not to send down the powers. But if men by ingenry and natural philosophy learn to fly into the heavens and come in the flesh among the heavenly powers and trouble them, he has not forbidden the powers to react. For all this is within the natural order. A wicked man did learn so to do. He came flying by a subtle engine to where Mars dwells in heaven and to where Venus dwells and took me with him as captive. And there I spoke with the true Oyeresu face to face. You understand me? Merlin inclined his head. And so the wicked man had brought about, even as Judas brought about, the thing he least intended. For now there was one man in the world, even myself, who was known to the Oyeresu and spoke their tongue, neither by God's miracle nor by magic from Numenor, but naturally, as when two men meet in a road. Our enemies had taken away from themselves the protection of the seventh law. They had broken by natural philosophy the barrier which God of his own power would not break. Even so, they sought you as a friend and raised up for themselves a scourge. And that is why the powers of heaven have come down to this house. And in this chamber where we are now discoursing, Malachandra and Paralandra have spoken to me. I have become a bridge, said Ransom. And this is the idea that wickedness can backfire in unexpected ways. Sir, said Merlin, what will come of this? If they put, their forth, put forth their power, they will unmake all Middle Earth. Their naked power, yes, said Ransom. That's why they will work only through a man. The magician drew one large hand across his forehead. Through a man whose mind is open so to be invaded, said Ransom, one who by his own will once opened it. I take our fair Lord to witness that if it were my task, I would not refuse it, but he will not suffer a mind that still has its virginity to be so violated. And though a black magician's mind, their purity neither can nor will operate. One who has dabbled in the days when dabbling had not begun to be evil or was only just beginning, and also a Christian man and a penitent, a tool, I must speak plainly, good enough to be so used and not too good. In all these western parts of the world, there was only one man who had lived in those days and could still be recalled, you. So this is God's plan working through the most unlikely person uh, and somewhat in spite of himself. And Merlin sort of goes on, isn't there somewhere, somebody out there somewhere that can help us? And Ransom says, the poison that was brewed in these west lands has spat itself everywhere by now. However far you went, you would find the machines, the crowded cities, the empty thrones, the false writings, the barren beds, men maddened with false promises, soured with true miseries, worshiping the iron works of their own hands, cut off from earth their mother and from their father in heaven. You might go east so far that east became west, and you returned to Britain across the great ocean. But even so, you would not have come out anywhere into the light. The shadow of one dark wing is over all Talus. Talus means earth. So it's this idea of the poison of progress, the rejection of the natural order that leads to massive alienation. And this, said Ransom, ignoring the question, is why we have no way left at all, save the one I told you. The hideous strength holds all this earth in its fist to squeeze as it wishes. But for their one mistake, there would be no hope left. If of their own evil will they had not broken the frontier and let in the celestial powers, this would be their moment of victory. Their own strength has betrayed them. They've gone to the gods who would not have come to them and pulled down deep heaven on their heads. Therefore, they will die. For though you search every cranny to escape, now that you see all crannies closed, you will not disobey me. So this is the whole idea that God's intervention and the spiritual powers in heaven coming in changes everything. So there are a bunch of themes in these two chapters that we've talked about. 
I'm not going to run over all of them, but this whole idea of means and ends, and when you start using any means to an end, the inevitable result is that it leads to murder. Uh, the whole idea of eugenics and the death culture, men without heads, this whole rejection of the natural order. And when you reject the way that God has made the universe and made man and reject the goodness of creation and call it bad, you unleash all manner of havoc and wreckage. So some practices of hope and wisdom. First, practice giving thanks for creation and the natural order God has made. It is all too easy to take creation for granted, to take the natural order for granted, and we need to learn to tune our hearts to praise. Um, The Psalms are great for this. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The second thing, beware of becoming lukewarm and collaborating with worldliness. What this book shows is these little steps make such a huge difference. Uh, From Revelation again, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. First Peter, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And then Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Thirdly, live robustly into your identity as a Christian, both inwardly and outwardly. No fence-sitting, no hemming and hawing, living fully into that identity. Great verse from Colossians. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And then fourthly, just because it will annoy people like the nice, use words well speaking the truth in love to give life and encouragement to all whom you encounter. Words are so incredibly powerful, and we have the opportunity to be instruments of blessing every day with each person we encounter. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness and it breaks the spirit. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And then back to the beginning, uh, that great hymn of Joseph Addison. I love this quotation from him. He said, God has made the best arguments for his own existence in the formation of the heavens and the earth. And these are arguments which a man of sense cannot forbear attending to who is out of the noise and hurry of human affairs. The psalmist has very beautiful strokes of poetry to this purpose in that exalted strain, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. As such a bold and sublime manner of thinking furnished out very noble matter for an ode, the reader may see it wrought into the following one. And that was his introduction to this hymn. But Joseph Addison has a strong Lewis connection because Joseph Addison was educated at Magdalen College, Oxford in the 17th century. He went on to become a fellow of Magdalen College, Oxford. And because he appreciated nature so much and walked so often through the trees and looking at the stars, 
they dedicated part of Maudlin's campus and the walk around it in his honor and called it Addison's Walk starting in the 18th century. And you will remember that Addison's Walk is where Lewis and Tolkien and Dyson had the conversation that led to Lewis's conversion to the Christian faith. So that's pretty cool. Uh, but I commend to you this hymn and this whole idea of appreciating the natural order, because in case you haven't noticed, the natural order is under attack all around us by our culture, and we can't take the natural order for granted. We need to be grateful for it, to appreciate it, to praise God for it. So on that note, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you for these chapters. We thank you for the the wisdom and the reality of the way good and evil are portrayed. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that we are in a spiritual battle and that we need you, that we cannot be neutral, that we cannot rely on our own resources, but that we need you. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts more and more daily to your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live as those who have hope, who can hold out the word of life to this dark and crooked and perverse culture. Lord, we pray for your protection. We pray for your strength. We pray for your blessing as we go in your name. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So next week, back in the parish hall, the tea room and all the desserts will be gone by then, sadly. Um, If you have 